ministers quite often, elders as well too, but quite often the minister is expected to, to visit people when, they, when there is a, a new uh, baby born. And you go to bring a word of encouragement, to pray with them, and you make some conversation with them. And quite often, one of the questions that I will ask on a baby, baby visit is, why this particular name for this baby? Why did you name the baby such and such? And, and you get a variety of answers, like, well, he was named John because that's his uh, grandfather's name, and so we wanted to name him after his grandfather. Uh, some try to find a name from the Bible, and so they'll name their child Levi or Rachel or Sarah or Nathan, Asher. You know? Or some might just merely say, well, we just like that name. We, we went through the whole list and we, we found a name that we liked, and so we named our daughter Denise or our, uh, our son Harry or our daughter Beyonce. Uh, some just look for a unique name. But in biblical times, names were much more specific. And we hope to see why that's significant in the case of the name of God's Son, Jesus. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess, I believe in Jesus. And we're asking this afternoon, why is that specific name important? And what are the implications of confessing this particular name? And Lord's Day 11 helps us to answer these questions. And may the Lord remind us again why the name of Jesus is indeed, as the old hymn goes, sweet in a believer's ear. This afternoon, as we look at Lord's Day 11, we want to summarize what we learn here with this theme, the necessity of confessing the name of Jesus' Savior. We'll see two points. In the first place, that name Jesus speaks of his mission. And in the second place, it speaks of his perfection. Well, as we consider the necessity of confessing the name of Jesus, Savior, we see in the first place that his name speaks of his mission. And so, in question and answer 29, again, we're asked, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Our answer, and this is our Christian confession, because he saves us from all our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Now, answer 29, you might recognize, is made up of two very powerful verses in the Bible. Matthew 1.21 and Acts 4, verse 12. And Matthew 1.21, of course, records the words of the angel to the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph, that Mary would give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And Jesus is given a very specific name, a name that would characterize his mission. And being God's Savior, the Lord does not leave it up to Mary and Joseph to name their son. God himself names his son. Listen as well to Luke 2, verse 21. In Luke 2, verse 21, we hear this. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, that is Jesus, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And so Luke emphasizes here that this was the name that Jesus was given even before he was conceived. This was the name by which God's Savior would be identified. A name which in itself contained a description of what he came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. Later on, after his ascension into heaven, recognizing and believing what the Lord had done, the apostles proclaimed this in Acts chapter 4, 
verse 12. Familiar words, I'm sure. Acts 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is the other part of the uh, question um, in the Catechism, uh, question and answer 29. This is the second part of that answer. It's quoted, it's a quotation, almost a direct quotation of Acts 4 verse 12. Here again, in Acts 4 verse 12, we find the name of Jesus being connected to his mission. Now names, as you may know, in biblical times, were not just, as we have today, uh, means of identification. Quite often, the name of a person told something of their character. And so we find in the book of Ruth, for instance, uh, Elimelech has a son named Mahlon, meaning weak or sick, obviously describing his health at his birth. The name of the priest Eli's grandson, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed, spoke of the religious state of the nation of Israel at that time, at the time of his birth. Moses was so, so named because he was taken up or drawn from the water. God's relationship to Israel was contained in the name he gave to Hosea's son, Lo Ami, not my people. And, and the circumstances of one's birth might even be described in his name. And so Rachel's, or Rachel named her son Ben-Oni, which means son of my trouble, as she died in childbirth. Or names would reflect the hopes of their parents. And so Noah is from the Hebrew meaning rest. Because Lamech, his father, named him in the hope that Noah would bring them rest and comfort since the Lord had cursed the ground. And so names were very specifically given in the Old Testament. And so not surprisingly, God names his son specifically. He says you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. His, no, his name spoke of his mission to save. And this was an, a mission that could be traced all through the Old Testament, right to the very beginning, all the way back, in fact, to God's promise to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right after the fall, that God would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. And all through history, he was preparing the world for the coming of Jesus. And so in Psalm 130, verse 8, for instance, we hear the hope for the future. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Or think of the prophecy of Zechariah. And this is in Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Israel looked forward to the coming of the Lord to save them. In Isaiah 43, verse 3, the Lord reminds them through his prophet, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One, your Savior. And these Old Testament verses actually set the context for what the angel said to Joseph or for what the shepherds heard as they were watching their flocks in the field at night from the angel. What did the angel say to the shepherds? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. This would not have made sense to them if they had not known and been taught in the Old Testament prophecies. 
The naming of Jesus was God's way of announcing that the promised time of salvation, when he would come into the world to save his people, that time had come. This was the savior of the world. Salvation was to be found in no one else but Jesus. And so the name Jesus then implies that all other saviors are excluded. God has specifically named the savior of his people. And that's why we run into problems with people, don't we? That exclusive claim. People would love it if we could all just hold hands and sing Kumbaya and say we all have different versions of God, different beliefs, but the fact that we all believe in some sort of God makes it all good, and so we can all be friends, we can all have unity. People would love it if we could just do that. But as soon as you say Jesus is an exclusive Savior, the only Savior, God's only Savior, that's when people begin to throw accusations at Christians that we are intolerant and we are unloving. What's the spirit of the age in which we live today? Do whatever works for you. Whatever feels right to you, you go ahead and do that. And no one has a right to judge or correct anyone else. You have no right to go to someone and say, you need to believe in Jesus. Regardless of how good you think you are, you need to put aside all of that and believe in Jesus. Today, people would say, you have no right to tell people that. No right to to correct anyone. Satan has actually played a masterful card in our day, teaching people that there is no absolute truth and having that taught and believed. It's wrong, people say, and intolerant to promote one view, one way over another. People say, there are many paths up the mountain, you just choose the one that's right for you. But here's the the sad thing about all of this. What many will learn too late is that it's actually not many paths up the mountain. It's many roads leading down to hell. Salvation is to be found in no one else. Only in the name of Jesus do we find the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. We hear in Hebrews 7 verse 25 that Jesus alone is able to save completely those who come to God through him. And so dear people of God, may the Lord give us eyes to see once again this afternoon that only in the name of Jesus is there salvation. He was named specifically to announce his mission to save us from our sins. That's why Christ Jesus came into this world, to save sinners. But as we confess the necessity of confessing the name of Jesus, Savior, we see in the second place that this confession also speaks of the perfection of Jesus. Listen again to question and answer 30. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior Jesus? We answer, no. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. And so we're kind of asking this question this afternoon. What are we to make of someone who says 
They believe in Jesus, but then you look at their lives, you look at their attitudes, and they actually lean more on their good works, on their own efforts, on their own practices, on their own traditions even. Well, the Catechism reminds us that this is actually a denial of Jesus. Because in their heart of hearts, a person who lives that way, saying, I believe in Jesus, but really trusting in their good works, in their heart of hearts, they don't think Jesus is enough. They probably wouldn't come right out and say it, but in their heart of hearts, what they believe is Jesus only gets you part of the way. I have to do the rest. And that's a dangerous road to get on. And of course, the original context in which the catechism was written was the 16th century Reformation. After many years of darkness, light came to the church. And God's word was placed into the hands of the common people once again. And godly men, like Calvin and Luther and so many, were raised up to glean from the scriptures a proper understanding of what exactly had been accomplished in Christ Jesus. And eyes began to open to the false teachings propagated by the Roman Catholic Church, like praying to Mary and the saints, buying indulgences and penance and purgatory, anti-Christian teachings and practices, really. And these things were all exposed in the Reformation for the lies that they were. And this catechism question addresses those who clung to these false teachings, who taught them and practiced them blindly and still professed that they were believers in Jesus. And the question is, did they really believe in him? Did they really trust in him if they were also trusting in these things? And the answer is simply no. But you know, sadly, the Roman Catholic Church was not the last time that the church would drift into dependence on good works and idolatry. What are we to think of those today who are deaf to the heresies and blasphemies being spoken of in their church? And their excuse, their defense is, well, this is my church. This is the denomination I belong to. This is where I've always gone, and so it really doesn't matter to me what the church says. I mean, there are denominations today who d deny the inerrancy and infallibility of the Bible itself, who deny that Jesus is a savior or even a necessary savior. I've talked to people or been in the, in the presence of people who address God as he, she, or it, and these are church-going people. You know, you have, and, and they make excuses and they say, well, I don't care what the church says. I belong to this church. This is my denomination. And, you know, is that not a denial of Jesus and a trusting more in a church or denomination in addition to saying that you believe in Jesus? What of those who dabble in the mysticism of things like prayer shawls and anointing oils, who deny the need for, for churches even? And for elders, even for the Bible, because they say, well, we don't need all of that. We don't need to go to church. We don't need elders over us. We don't even need the Bible because we have the Holy Spirit. And that's where they put their trust. What, are those, what do we say of those today who are constantly craving the spiritual high in worship? Every time they go to church, are they not 
seeking to add to the work of Jesus or denying him by seeking to, to work themselves up in some kind of emotional state? Do they truly see him as sufficient? And you know, at the end of the day, it all comes back to this, to the, the question of questions. Does a person really understand their spiritual state, their sinful state before God? You think of that much-loved, wonderful hymn by John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How many people in, in so many churches and denominations would want to sing it that way today? A wretch? What do you mean a wretch? That, that, that's offensive, they would say. I'm a good person. A, a wretch is a person who is characterized by misery. That's a contemptible person, a person to be pitied. A wretch is a beggar. I'm no wretch. I'm not going to sing that. Some churches will not even use the word sin anymore or preach about the consequences of sin. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, an attempt was made. Thankfully, the attempt failed, but it was actually made... Uh, and this was in the liberal branch of the, P, of the PCA US. And the attempt that was brought forward, what, was, what they were trying to do was to change the words in this, uh, the modern hymn, In Christ Alone. I'm sure we all know that, uh, that modern hymn. And there's a line, I think it's the most powerful line in the whole song. There's a line in that that says, But on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And there was this branch of the PCA who wanted to change that line to this. On that cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. You see the difference? It goes from the wrath to the love. Now, thankfully, they failed to get the author's approval. But that's a classic modern example of a denial of the need for and the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And beloved, as, unless we really see ourselves as we really are, we have to understand that we will never really cast ourselves on the mercy of God. We will never be like the, like the tax collector who said, uh, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Unless we come to that understanding, we will never really trust in Jesus Christ and really depend upon his perfection. We all have to come to the understanding that only the blood of Jesus can save me completely. Only Jesus has merited salvation by his perfect obedience and sacrifice. Only Jesus came to be an atoning sacrifice for all of my sins. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11 that we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere else can we find such sanctification. In our scripture reading, we heard the confession of the Apostle Paul. He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen to that. We're speaking, we're thinking about the perfection of Jesus. Paul doesn't say here that Jesus came to try to save or to do his best to save. He came to save. There's nothing left undone. The work is finished. There's a great line in an old hymn. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. You know, 
I'm one of those who believe that if the Apostle Paul were alive today, he would be sitting in a church like this. He would be reformed. And he would be singing such a hymn as that with us. Paul confesses here that he is the chief of sinners. He is the worst of sinners. People would hear that today and they would say, why why would Paul use such language to speak about himself? That's that's so self-deprecating. Certainly that can't be good for his self-esteem. Was was Paul here just trying to be overly humble? Not at all. He meant it. Paul believed this. Paul took an honest look at his life and he saw himself as one who was in drastic need of God's mercy. He says of himself in verse 13, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And Paul was a man who understood how great was God's grace in his life. He calls himself here a former blasphemer. What's a blasphemer, boys and girls? A blasphemer is one who speaks against the Lord. And Paul in particular spoke against the Lord Jesus Christ and he forced others to do so as well. Listen to the confession that comes from his his lips in Acts 26, verse 9 through 11. Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. These are Paul's words, his confession. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. That's our beloved Apostle Paul. This is what he was like before his conversion. But now he stood on the the other side of the fence, as it were. And he was able to look back at his former life and appreciate the depth of his depravity and the greatness of his need. And so, no wonder he calls himself the chief of sinners. He saw himself as a wretch who had opposed the work of the precious Savior until he was shown mercy. And so, having had this experience, Paul then worked tirelessly against adding to the work of Christ. We heard in our scripture reading in verse 3, his charge to Timothy to command certain men not to teach false doctrines. Time and again, Paul battled against the false false teachers who taught that more needed to be done. In all the churches. If we read his letters, we see Paul not shying away from teaching the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. He never softens the gospel to please anyone. He wasn't afraid of offending people. He wasn't afraid, we might say, to send people to hell with a smile and a handshake. He writes, O foolish Galatians, Who has bewitched you? He declares in our passage in verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus 
came into this world to save sinners. He doesn't pull his punches here, does he? He addresses our greatest need, and that's what we need to hear. We are sinners. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Boys and girls, what's a sinner? Or a sinner is someone who breaks God's law, who is disobedient to God in any way. And a sinner is in need of saving. A sinner is in need of forgiveness, of God's forgiveness. And they need things to be made right between them and God again. And Paul gives us in this verse, not only our problem, but the answer, the sol- God's solution to that problem, Christ Jesus. He came into this world to save us. Our fallen nature, which has resulted in unrighteousness, had alienated us from God. We were lost if we were not saved by Jesus. The li- we have to understand our situation. The lions were about to tear us apart and crunch our bones up. God's bow was drawn and his arrow is sharp. We were sunk up to our necks in the miry clay. We were fuel for the flames. We were plummeting from the heights to the rocks below. The fury of God's wrath was scorching. The flames were already licking at our clothes. We were sinking to the depths, bound in chains, weighed down by our guilt. We had no hope. If we were not saved. Christ Jesus came into this world. To save sinners. And he's finished the job. And congregation it's good to be reminded of this again. Because there's an old saying. In reform circles anyway. That there's a little Arminian in all of us. What does that mean? It means that there's something in us. And it's part of our fallen nature that we don't accept God's grace completely too easily. We want, in some small way, some tiny way, we want to contribute to our salvation. And we look at our sins, we look at our shortcomings and our failings, and sometimes we even we cause those to, to make us doubt, or we begin to doubt that God could really love us. And we think, maybe we need to do more. Well, do we need to do more? Of course, certainly, we all need to do more, but... It's, it's times like this when we need to remember that at the end of the day, as the Catechism so wisely reminds us, those who in true faith accept this Savior have all, their ne- all they need for their salvation. The name of Jesus speaks of His perfection. A true believer always returns to the fact that through Jesus, our Father's love to what us never ceases. Our names are never deleted out of the book of life. God will never hit the stop or pause button on our salvation. And in those times when we begin to think or we're tempted to think that maybe we can keep ourselves in God's good graces by our obedience, we remember that obedience is the fruit of our salvation, not the cause of it. Obedience is the fruit of our salvation, not the cause of it. And we come back to this glorious confession. We who in true faith accept the Savior have in Him all we need for our salvation. We rest in the words of our Lord in John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 
And children of God, that's where the true comfort lies, doesn't it? You know, we, we live in, in difficult times for churches like ours, for conservative churches that simply want to preach the gospel and worship God reverently. Because you have all this competition around you. And you find your members going off on vacation or whatever, and they come back and they say, oh, that church down, down the road is so wonderful. This church has this and that church has that. The music there is so peppy. And the people there are so excited. Here's the thing, that's all fine and good. But you can have all the excitement you want. But if Jesus isn't being preached, if sinners and sin aren't being addressed, then true Christianity is not being broadcast. And God's people are not really being given any kind of comfort. What does that call us to today? Well, certainly not to look down our noses on others, but we need to be a praying people. That's our greatest weapon. We need to be praying for reformation in the churches today, for a reawakening, for revival. We need to be praying to our God for the end of liberalism, for a restoration to biblical preaching, a restoration to reverent worship. We need to be praying for these things. But we also have to take this personally as well too. And this calls us to ask ourselves again today, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Why was he even named Jesus? And do I find in him all I need to be right with God? Why is it still necessary after so many centuries to still confess in the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, I believe in Jesus. And beloved of God, may our answer be that it's because we believe that Jesus is the Savior of sinners and the only sinner, our Savior of, sa- savior of sinners. May this be our confident confession that in this name, Jesus, I am ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And in this name, Jesus, I find an incomparable, all-sufficient Savior. Amen.